0: Visit plannedparenthood.org slash future to learn more and support their cause.
1: That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com.
2: Guest today is Vicki Shabo from the New America Foundation. Uh, this is a conversation about family leave policy, uh, which has never quite broken through as like a top tier issue in American politics. But I know is really important to me personally and to, I think, a lot of people who listen to the show. Uh, I learned a lot. And, and this is an issue that I, I keep hoping is going to sort of break through into the mainstream. So check it out. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. My guest today, Vicki Shabo, is the Senior Fellow for Family Leave Policy and Strategy at New America. Did I get that right? Uh,
3: senior Fellow for Paid Leave Policy and Strategy for at New America. Paid Leave <laughs> Policy and Strategy.
2: Ah, I practiced it three times and I blew it. <laughs> okay, um, so we're here to talk about paid leave policy, maybe a little strategy. Let's just start, like, what's the what's the issue here? I mean, paid leave is something uh, some of us have as benefits, um, you know, at at our work, it was a subject of negotiation. When we formed a union here, had a collective bargaining process, we, we won more paid leave. But is that common? I mean, do, do most people have leave? Like, what's the what's the basic situation?
3: Yeah, no. So most people in the United States don't have paid family leave to care for a new child or a seriously a loved one. Uh, most people don't have personal medical leave for a long period of time. So only 19 percent of workers in the U.S. have paid family leave to care for a child or a seriously a loved one. Sometimes parents who are giving birth might have time through Uh, employer's short-term disability policy, but only 40% of workers are covered by employer short-term disability. And if you start looking at Um, income disparities, they're huge. So we've heard a lot, you know, over the last uh, couple of years about the momentum and how employers are starting to do the right thing, and you'll see headlines. But the reality is that access to paid family leave has only grown six percentage points over the last five years, from 13% to 19%. And if you look at where the income, where different workers sort of shake out with that, the highest wage workers have had a 12% Increase, 12 percentage point increase from 22% to 34%. For low-wage workers, the lowest, it's two percentage points, 4% to 6%.
2: So we've seen this grow, essentially, you're saying, as a benefit at the the higher end of the employment market. People who are already pretty well compensated at a certain margin, employers start offering –
3: yeah and then sometimes you see sneaky headlines so like Walmart made a big splash when they adopted i think it was 6 weeks of paid paid leave for new parents but it only applied to full-time workers so mm-hmm. they get a check they get the gold star but their part-time workforce is like 60% of their workforce so they're not getting the benefit of that policy right. so it's sneaky it's like there's overall access numbers there's you know significant disparities by wage level and by job type. And then even within the same employer, you have different tiers of benefits. Right.
2: And so part of the idea of a a national paid leave policy is to obviously extend that to to many more people and also create some kind of a uniform standard.
3: Exactly. So the U.S. is— people love to use the statistic i sometimes have trouble with it just because i'm not sure we can compare ourselves to the rest of the world mm-hmm. for all sorts of reasons but we're one of two countries that has no guaranteed paid leave whatsoever right. of any kind um that applies to moms primarily or people who are giving birth but um we don't think about this as something that provides basic economic security or support and what that means is you have this patchwork you have a state patchwork you've got A people patchwork, so, you know, two people in a family, one of them might have paid leave, one of them might not. You've got folks that are using, like, vacation and sick time and unpaid leave, if you're lucky to have that through the 1993 Family and Medical Leave Act. But there is no standard or program that says that you deserve and should have access to paid family and medical leave, no matter where you live, no matter where you work, the job you have, or whether you're caring for a new child or dealing with a personal or family member's serious illness.
2: I mean, to be real, it's, it's probably not actually true that in all of these countries, right, right, right. everyone in practice, no, right? Because there's a lot of people, you know, in India or in informal sure. labor markets. But if you compare the United States to, you know, similar developed yeah. countries, well, right? And,
3: well, and also this is why I think it's problematic. So we know from, you know, Europe and from other countries, they might have long maternity leaves, but those have actually created negative employment effects for women. Mm-hmm. You might have on paper a guarantee, but it's it, you can't use it without— uh, without retribution. So that's one of the reasons I don't love the international comparisons. Right. I just don't think they're very fair. But what I do think is that the U.S. really has an opportunity to leapfrog a lot of the rest of the world with respect to creating a, a national standard around around. The economic security and the health benefits, and sort of all the reasons why paid leave is good for workers and families and businesses in the economy.
2: And you were involved in helping to put together the the Family Act, which uh, no uh, Senator Kristen Gillibrand, Representative uh, Rose Deloro and uh, most congressional democrats yeah have co-sponsored
3: yeah so the the family and medical insurance leave act or family act for short uh the why you know you could say yay or <laughs> yes <Sure>. or whatever <laughs> but the family act um has been introduced every year since 2013 i actually think today is the anniversary the 6th anniversary mm-hmm. um, of that bill being introduced december 12th or whatever it is today uh and um yeah the the it, it is uh modeled on successful state programs, and when it was first introduced, it was more generous than any of the state programs um, sort of in what it provides. Mm-hmm. which that's is changed. Yeah, um, and now it's sort of middle of the road, okay. um, which is a really exciting sign of progress. And so, you know, to your question, yeah, um, the other thing that I think is interesting as a, a person who did, you know, consult on helping to draft the bill— Um, Worked to get organizations and businesses and others to support it in the first instance and has really, you know, watched that support grow kind of in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, There are now more than 700 organizations nationwide that support the Family Act. There's close to 100 businesses that support the Family Act. But what's really significant is when that bill was first introduced, there were six senators, Mm -hmm. uh, all Democrats, and I think. Somewhere between fifty and seventy House members, and now we're at uh, thirty-five senators and two hundred and two House members, including for the first time a Republican. There you go. So progress. Okay.
2: So what? What? What's in this bill? Basically, this is it's twelve weeks of yeah. leave is the that's like the main headline.
3: Yes. So what the Family Act would do is create a national paid family and medical leave program, which is set up as a social insurance fund. Um, And it would guarantee workers up to 12 weeks of paid leave to care for a new child through birth, adoption, or foster placement, to care for a seriously ill, injured, or disabled family member, to care for their own serious health issue, to care for a service member or veteran who was wounded in service, uh, or to deal with certain military exigencies around Mm -hmm. deployment. So it's the same purposes that are covered under the Family and Medical Leave Act uh, from 1993 which itself guarantees unpaid job-protected leave with health benefits. But we know that unpaid leave has never been enough. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, huge disparities there.
2: And so in this case, I I mean, one way I think this often gets talked about is that there should be a regulatory mandate on employers that, you know, when when I get paid leave at Vox Media, that means Vox Media keeps paying me, but I go on leave. Uh, There could be a rule that everybody has to do that.
3: There there could be. What I— like about the social insurance mechanism, and I should have said it guarantees you a portion of your wages. Mm -hmm. Um, Right now, it's 66 percent, up to a cap of $4,000 a month with some employment protections. But the reason that I I think a a mandate, um, Mm -hmm. which is a word I don't use often, um, but a regulation that employers just provide that benefit means that there's an incentive for employers to discriminate against women who may be more likely to have children or take leave or to care for um, sick family members, um, or to uh, discriminate against people with disabilities or people who look like they might be less healthy because they'll need it. Um, It's also more difficult for small businesses to deal with um, paid leave. On a one-to-one basis, it's mm-hmm. much easier for them, and there's business testimonials all over the place about how it's easier for them to deal with leave if they're paying into a social insurance fund and their workers have access to leave because that frees them up to hire a temporary replacement worker if they need to. It, it keeps them from the income shocks of needing right. to deal with an employee who's out on leave because you know.
2: there's sort of a large number thing, right? If you have 10,000 employees, then at any given time, some of them will be on leave. Not that many of them. It's not that big a deal. Right. But if you only have uh, 11 employees and by happenstance, two of them go out on leave at the same time, now you suddenly have a right. like a crushing –
3: and what Probably. we know from states, so like California was the first of what's now nine states, including the District of Columbia, to have paid family and medical leave programs that have passed that are either implemented or will soon be implemented. What we know from California is that businesses do figure out how to get the work covered, whether mm-hmm. they're hiring a replacement or asking their employees to work more or pick up the this, this slack themselves if it's a small business. But, you know, business owners often say that the idea of having to provide paid leave or or feeling like they should provide paid leave when an employee needs it without any warning is really troubling. So, like, there's this woman named Sarah Piepenberg, or Piepenberg, Mm -hmm. apologies to her if she's listening to this, who owns a vinegar shop in Minneapolis. It's called Vinaigrette. And she has testified and she's written about how she had an employee who broke both of her arms, and she just felt like as an—I think— has a a very small business. She Mm -hmm. felt like as an employer, she couldn't not pay this worker Mm -hmm. while she was on leave. And so she talks about going to this person's house and giving her her paycheck and bringing her groceries. Right. And the employee was so grateful but it meant that Sarah couldn't pay her retail mortgage and fell behind on her own rent because she was trying to provide for her employee. She also has looked into purchasing short-term disability insurance through the private market and has concluded that's way too expensive for small businesses to do that.
2: So, so the way this works is everybody pays higher exactly. taxes, and then if you go out on leave, uh, the government. Gives you, would you say 66%? 66%, yeah. Of your, of your ordinary. So, how much, how much higher taxes?
3: So, the Family Act contemplates a four tenths of 1% payroll contribution, mm-hmm. um, which is about two bucks a week on each of the employer side and the employee side. So, four tenths split between employers and employees.
2: So, right now, so this is like Social Security tax it's right exactly, now yeah. is six, what, 6.2%, 6.2% on yeah. each it's side? One,
3: it's one eighteenth of Social Security. Right. So, it
2: would go up, in effect, it would go up to 6.6%. and Social Security would now provide well, it
3: would be six point four percent um oh, on yes. each side. Okay, yeah.
2: right. Um and and Social Security would now provide
3: Yeah. Although the the fight the tax might be sort of a separate line okay. item. Um it is contemplated that it would run out of the Social Security Administration, but out of a new office that would administer its own trust fund that would okay. administer benefits separately so that it wouldn't touch Social Security in any way. Okay. Um, but it would kind of build on the infrastructure and the knowledge that Social Se- the Social Security Administration has to deliver benefits. Um, it has a you know nationwide field office infrastructure. It knows how to do this. Um, however, it needs more resources. So sure. we've always also advocated that SSA itself needs more to be able to do this. And the, the fund would provide for that more. Right. So it would cover the four tenths would cover or is contemplated to cover the benefits, the administration, the outreach, the education, all of those things. Right. And
2: so the idea is it, but it's 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 sort of conceptually similar it's to exactly conceptually as well, si- where,
3: Yeah. It's a it's a it's a fund you pay into it and you are able to use the benefit when you need it. So
2: why two thirds? Like how does that
3: well it's a great question. So when the Family Act was first introduced um or as as it was first being drafted there were two states that had policies in place California and New Jersey which were the first two. California's wage replacement rate at that time was 55% mm-hmm. and research had begun to show that that was an insufficient level of wage replacement to be able to let especially lower-income workers use the benefit. Right. California has since raised that wage replacement rate. New Jersey at the time had 66 percent, um, and it was found to be more affordable for lower-wage workers. Um, but interestingly, California's maximum benefit was $1,000 a week, and New Jersey's was like five or $600 a week. And okay. so the combination of the higher-wage replacement and the higher weekly benefit got folded into the Family Act as sort of best practices from the states. Well, fast forward six years, as I said, we've now got nine states, including D.C., and each of the last five states that have passed laws, which, by the way, has happened uh, since the Trump administration has taken office, basically, mm-hmm. uh, so progress in this era, it has what's called a progressive wage replacement. Feature. Okay. So does that yeah. mean –
2: that means uh, you get – so it's like 66 percent of your first – No. Whatever? So okay. what it
3: means is – and 66 percent – none of them are 66 okay. percent. So they um, replace wages between 80 and 100 percent of okay. a worker's wages on the first X dollars mm-hmm. of income, usually some percentage or proportion of the state's median – uh, wage and then after that you get a lower wage replacement rate. Okay. So basically what you're doing is making leave much 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 more affordable for low income workers who really can't afford ev- to take time right. off even on 66% of their wages. So
2: that I mean and that also replicates social security's structure yep, which has exactly. these these bend points, right? So yep. the 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 benefit that you get is uh, a function of your sort of taxable income yes. during your working years, but it's not a it's not a linear function of it, right? Right. So right.
3: and so so paid leave the newer paid state paid leave laws are structured in that same way. So as you know, Congress eventually takes up the Family Act, which hopefully will be soon. Some of these tweaks could get folded in to make make the policy even more robust, especially to lower wage workers.
2: And so then I assume that what happens because as you said already, it's a the trend is for sort of higher-end employers to be offering yeah. leave benefits. So then if you're, um, I don't know, you're like fancy tech company in California, you can offer – as an employer benefit, as supplemental.
3: Absolutely. And so often, you know, one of the talking points that we always hear is, oh, this is going to crowd out private employer Mm -hmm. benefits, or this is, you know, shifting costs from private employers to to workers and to taxpayers. But what we've seen in California is that, of course, these, you know, tech companies and other high-end employers are topping up. This is how they are competitive to other companies. So, yeah, the the, the sort of crowd out talking point really makes no sense to me. And there's always flexibility for employers to be able to do more.
2: Okay, let's take a break. Then I want to ask you big philosophical questions.
3: Sure.
4: Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy.
0: you can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit plannedparenthood.org
2: future to learn more and support their cause. So the, the way this works, right, I mean, there, there's a lot of details to it, but like broadly speaking, everybody is going to pay, and then only some people are going to get benefits yep. uh, based on, you know, like how many kids you have or, or uh, other other medical type yep. situations. But just thinking about the sort of parental leave piece. Um, and so why should there be like a cross subsidy from people who aren't having kids to people who are?
3: Well, so I think you can't disentangle the kid piece from the other piece. Um, and part of the reason why the Family Act is designed to be inclusive of all serious family and medical needs is so that everybody has skin in the game. Hmm. At some point, everyone uh, is—virtually everyone will need to take time out of work to deal with their own health issue or to care for a seriously ill family member or to have a child. And so, you know, we know from data on the FMLA that actually the most common reason people take a family or medical leave from work is to deal with their own situation. Mm -hmm. So 55 percent of FMLA uses are personal medical leave. Another fifth or so are family caregiving. um, And about— Whatever the remainder is, or like a little <laughs> bit less than twenty five percent, are to care for a new child. Okay. So the new child piece it gets a lot of attention, but it's actually not the reason why most people are using FMLA, and and won't be the reason why most people are using a paid family and medical. Well, I law. mean, do
2: you think that would carry over into a, into a paid leave context? Because it seems it seems a little bit different to me, right? It's if you have a serious illness such that you like actually can't work. Then taking an unpaid leave seems reasonably attractive compared to just getting fired.
3: Well, from but think your job. about yeah. I mean, we don't see that. So in the states where they do have temporary yeah. disability insurance, so California, New mm-hmm. Jersey, Rhode Island, and New York, which were the first four states to add paid family leave benefits, mm-hmm. it's no accident that those states also were four of the five where temporary disability insurance has either been provided through a state fund, funded through payroll contributions, Uh or a mandate uh, on employers to provide for for decades. Hmm. So in those states, if you look at overall program usage of of temporary disability insurance or TDI – And paid family leave for caregiving or parental leave, it's overwhelmingly TDI use there, too. Hmm. Okay. So, you know, yes, in the case where you just absolutely cannot go to work, of course, like, you're not going to go to work. And you're going to lose income, and you're going to have all sorts of other challenges, financial challenges. Mm -hmm. But if you can go to work, if you are dealing with a cancer diagnosis or you have an injury that isn't a workplace-related injury where you'd get workers' comp – Like, you're probably still going to drag yourself to work as much as you can, or you're going to use whatever few sick days you have if you have them, or you're going to use your vacation time if you have it. And again, not everybody has those things. Um, And you're going to try to make do. But the the premise here is that if you are able to take paid leave to deal with your own serious health issue, you're going to be able to recover faster. You're going to be able to get back to work. And the other thing that we know from the state policies is that most workers don't use the full duration that's available to them. So temporary disability insurance in the states that have it is 26 to 52 weeks. What we're talking about at the federal level is a 12-week benefit.
2: Okay, right. So we've had some some action uh, the, the, the week that we are recording this show, um, which is that the National Defense Act, uh, President Trump wanted to get a Space Force made, and Democrats Apparently, their counter ask for this was to create a paid leave program into the federal government. Do you see something like that? I mean, is that is that progress in a meaningful way? Or does it in some ways, like, do, do you worry that it undermines the cause at all?
3: I think it's a great question. Um, and I don't. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when employers, just to, to take a step back. So yeah. several years ago, there was this, the beginning a uh, front of employers high-end employers that were starting to provide paid leave benefits on their own and there was some consternation in the advocacy community of like is this a good thing or is this going to undercut mm-hmm. the the demand for public policy and i think in the end it's actually socialized the issue mm-hmm. for the employer community in a way that's quite transformative so i think similarly the federal government the the federal government implementing paid leave and it's only for new parents and that was a, a concession and a compromise i think just reinforces the idea that this is something that people should have. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll be able to do cost-benefit studies. We'll be able to look at, you know, impacts on retention and things like that. But, you know, if you think about it as the federal government as an employer needing to be competitive to mm-hmm. hire and retain workers who want to have children, I think it's a good thing. Right. Um, it's affecting 2 million people. So do we
2: know from from states that have uh, implemented, you, you know, uh, universal leave programs, are there, like, like good – good results that you would point to? Oh, yeah. Like, they did this in New Jersey, and now, you know, the birds are singing. And, you know, <laughs> what, what's the what's what's the sort of, you know, the, the hard-nosed case? Yeah.
3: I mean, there are, are tremendous benefits. Um, and we've learned a lot about how programs can be implemented and how outreach and education can be improved and how policy parameters can mm-hmm. be tweaked to make it even better. But even as it exists now, so California has had its program in place Uh, passed in 2002. It's been paying benefits since 2004. It's been improved multiple times to expand the the family members for whom one can provide care, to increase wage replacement, to improve job protection, to get rid of a waiting period, lots of tweaks Mm -hmm. um, that have made the program better. What we've seen from multiple studies um, is improved labor force participation, improved earnings, for women in particular, um, whether they're caring for a new child or for a seriously ill family member. That's been particularly true for women of color and lower wage workers relative to folks who haven't women mm-hmm. who haven't taken paid leave. Um, we've seen men who are taking parental leave uh, increase from less than 15% when the program first went into place to 40% of baby bonding claims are now mm-hmm. taken by dads, hmm. um, which is incredible and really foreshadows a cultural change that we need to see in this country if we care about gender equity. Um, we've seen reduced utilization of nursing homes hmm. by 11 percent, um, which translates into Medicaid savings. We've seen other outcomes for children like reduced head trauma. Shaken okay. baby syndrome has gone down. Um, and uh, outcomes around ADHD and education have improved. Okay. So uh,
2: so that's it. That's interesting. Uh, Particularly interesting to me is you said you see an increased labor force participation uh, from women, which is to say people who otherwise would have been taking time out of the workforce are coming back with a sort of a a guaranteed return of their job, whereas in the past they would have dropped out. I mean, I'm I'm trying to see what are we we saying here. I think it's
3: more... um, Yes, that could be one interpretation. But mm-hmm. we don't know what those people would have done. Maybe sure. they would have kept working. Maybe, like, 23 percent of American women, they would have gone back to work within two weeks of giving birth, right. which isn't good for their babies or for them. Um, so we, you know, we don't know. Mm-hmm. But some of them will would have left the labor force. Um, and there's an, a new study that's out that we should talk about because it's causing mm-hmm. a lot of buzz right now that goes against some of this. Uh <laughs> But, you know, it's it's saying for uh, Latinas in particular, Latina and low-income women, mm-hmm. they took a longer leave than they would have taken. Right. And they had higher earnings. Okay. After they—you know, in some period of time after they went back, that's consistent with some research out of Rutgers um, on paid leave programs generally in
2: But there, there was this new study. Yeah. That was sort of less— Less
3: yeah. So there's this new study that like requires the asterisk next to all of the good news. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll tell you what it found, but then I'm going to also tell you why we need to take it with a grain of salt. All right. Let's talk. Uh, so this was a study that was done by researchers out of the University of Michigan. And what they did was look at the very first cohort of moms in California, um, so third quarter of 2004, mm-hmm. and looked at what happened to their earnings in one to five years and in six to 10 years. Mm-hmm. And they used IRS data to do that. And what they concluded was that women were working less and working fewer hours, and as a result, their incomes were substantially lower. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is counter to much of the literature that's mm-hmm. out there, most of the literature that's out there, certainly about the state programs right. in the U.S. context. Um So that caused some concern, and it's been a talking point, especially in conservative media, about why paid leave is bad. Right. But here's why I think we need to sort of take it with a grain of salt. So, one, it was the very first cohort, as I said, of California women who could take leave. So the authors hypothesized maybe this group of women was special in some way. Mm -hmm. But also, the third quarter of 2004 was a really long time ago. Uh So 15 years ago. Um, As I said earlier, men were only 15 percent, less than 15 percent of leave takers Mm -hmm. at that time. Um, It was pre-recession, and the study didn't account for self-employment income. Mm -hmm. So we really need to take all of this with a grain of salt. Certainly, it's worth further investigation and looking at other cohorts of leave takers. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting finding. And to me, if you take the study at face value— and if you sort of accept its premises as true, um, to me, what it says is, first of all, women were doing a tremendous amount of investment in their children, mm-hmm. and that that has val- certainly has value. Um, but in terms of their economic outcomes, first of all, we need to make sure that we're designing programs themselves, the parameters and the outreach, so that men will take leave. Mm-hmm. Because we know from other research that when men take leave, it makes it easier for women to go back to work. There's less gender bias. Outcomes are better mm-hmm. um, in terms of equity and wages and all of that. Two, we really need to be thinking about how paid leave and child care go together. So if, if one of the reasons that women are, are choosing to scale back their work is to provide child care, that may be because there's not quality, affordable, accessible child care available to them. And three, we really need to think about um, how we pay and compensate part-time workers.
2: Right. Well, this also – I mean, this speaks to the, the the question of, like, what are our objectives here, right? Because, yeah. I mean, I know in some uh, – some European countries have extremely long uh, right. paid parental leave, which I know, you know, some Americans who I know look at that and they look on it with a lot of jealousy, uh, whereas others, you know, nobody would turn down exactly, like, free extra benefits. But, I mean, I definitely know – Women, especially who you know, say th- they would feel that as a as a burden. Yeah, you know that they they want to have some time off. Um, it, it's valuable. It's useful, but they would like to also come back right. to work right. at a certain point. Whereas something like the German system is essentially, I mean, I mean, in in countries that have higher taxes and provide more public benefits, an alternative to providing childcare for very young children is you can provide. Paid leave right. for their parents to do the childcare, right? Yes, and, and that's just like a. Di- it, so th- there's a question of like what, like what's the vision of right. society? So like, we don't like do what do that we want here. Yeah, right. I
3: mean here, like we value work. Like all of the rhetoric is about worker, you know, people who are working and hardworking people and being responsible.
2: Right. Well, we don't do anything in America, we, right? So like, that means we, we could do, like we, hypothetically, we could sh- go in any direction.
3: Sure, sure. Um, but if you're thinking about. The income and sort of upward mobility of a household mm-hmm. in the U.S. context, it's tied to—in it, the past has been tied to work. Maybe right. now it's tied to being a CEO. But, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's tied to work and the value of work. And, like, we had a whole conversation about single moms who needed to go back to work and were getting kicked off of welfare, right. you know, decades ago. So, you know, we value work. The way that paid leave programs are designed, the way that the Family Act would be designed or the state programs are designed, is that they are programs for workers who will continue working. Right. Um, And, yeah, I think we need to ask what we're trying to maximize. So in the European countries, you know, a lot of those policies, the long maternity leaves have been in place for more than 100 years. Mm -hmm. They were set up as pronatalist policies. They kind of separated out women and men according to gender roles that many people— don't want to see kind of reified anymore. Mm-hmm. And they didn't provide leave to men, which meant that women were the caregivers and men were the breadwinners. Right. And that's just not how it works anymore. Our our wage growth and expenses and all of those things, you know, lots of people have written about this. Um, we don't have, you know, as Heather Boucher would call it, like the American wife anymore, mm-hmm. who is who is the partner of business. Like we have all adults needing to work.
2: Right. So you, the the vision here, the like your intended Social outcome is men and women are taking leave. The leave is uh, adequate, but not super duper long. People are going back to work, and then something else
3: yeah, that is that not There's another this system. Yeah, and, should and, be
2: done as childcare, n-
3: right? And so there's childcare. You could, but you know, you could also make part time work better. Mm-hmm. You can do job share. Like you could do a lot of things to make workplaces more family friendly and make it more possible for parents of any gender. To be able to both be with their children more and, sure. you know, and, and have a job that pays them a decent wage that allows them the upward mobility that we all want. Right, right. But, yeah, I mean, the idea is that you are taking leave for a period of time in a gender-equitable way that men and women and people of all genders are, like, incentivized to take leave, and then you come back.
2: Right. Because, I mean, isn't there—there's some—I I mean, it, it it's good to have— to have good benefits. But but I think I've seen some paper, maybe it was Claudia Golden looking at some of the, the European uh, systems. And, you know, her conclusion, I think, was that it winds up uh, leading to even less representation of women yeah. in executive ranks than you see in the United States.
3: Yeah. And so that, you know, and how do you unpack that? She mm-hmm. does some of the unpacking, but some of it is like lack of Paid leave, another family-friendly benefit. Some of it is the bias that's in the workplace. And certainly, you know, we're in the middle of a now two-plus-year conversation about harassment mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and discrimination. Like, there's a lot that goes into lack of representation of yes. women in high places. But, yeah, paid leave is a piece of this puzzle. Mm-hmm. So uh,
2: we, we've got a presidential campaign happening. Yeah. Uh, do we—their proposals from, from candidates, uh, do they— like, are there important variations people should know about? I mean, if this has not been like a major subject of
3: I debate know. Isn't that in the it's so campaign. frustrating. It um, affects literally every family in this country.
2: I personally hate healthcare policy, and I, <laughs> I would no, I love it. Sorry, Sarah, um, but I, I, I would, I would like to talk about something
4: fresh. I would because too. Because we we've
2: argued about healthcare for a well, long time, yeah. but so I have not seen the candidates arguing about it. So I actually don't know uh, what. Ideas they've put on the table, or if they differ at all?
3: Yeah. So, uh, yes, um, they all, almost all of them at this point have policies, mm-hmm. which is really exciting. Um, and all of them use the Family Act as their baseline. Okay. Um, some have gone further. So, uh, Kamala Harris had a six month 100% pay policy that was bold and visionary. Obviously, she's not in the race anymore. <laughs> Caught um, on like fire. That, I mean, but that was, you know, is that realistic or not? I don't know. Sure. But to have that as a mm-hmm. kind of an aspiration, I thought was really exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, Pete Buttigieg has said family act as a baseline, but progressive wage replacement, more expansive family definition, more job protection, and some really innovative ways of using the healthcare system and the VA hmm. to help with outreach and education and kind of with take-up mm-hmm. of the benefit. Um, Castro has said more family members and better for low-wage workers. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth Warren just embraced—I mean, has has been a co-sponsor of the Family Act for a long time, but, but the other day kind of put out a tweet and a paper about how she was picking up Senator Gillibrand's mantle. So this is the what's really exciting, and this is different than previous campaigns. Mm-hmm. Like, Family Act is a no-brainer for mm-hmm. these folks— um the idea of 12 weeks of paid leave in a social insurance framework seems to be a no-brainer. And then the question is, like, what else can we do? Sure. And I think that's super exciting.
2: Very exciting. All right. So let's take another break, and then I want to talk about some of the alternative ideas that are out there. Sure.
1: Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then WISE might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W I S E.com. WISE.com.
5: Vacations can be tricky.
2: So one thing that can get tricky as a journalist is, you know, sometimes people will say, like, no, I I disagree with that, right? I don't think marijuana should be legal or whatever. Uh, But paid leave has now reached a point where everyone is sort of for it. And yet there doesn't seem to be really agreement on what it is that they are for exactly. Um, And I I think Marco Rubio in in particular has championed a sort of alternative uh, Republican – kind of vision for this and, and and some other ideas that are out there. So maybe you can let us know what what else is happening.
3: Yeah. So, you know, starting about four years ago, so the 2016 campaign was the first time that we really saw Republican candidates also using the words paid mm-hmm. family leave. So at that time, I think it was actually 2015, um, Marco Rubio put out a proposal for a tax credit. Mm-hmm. Actually, that tax credit got—a version of that tax credit got put into the 2017 tax bill and is about to expire. Um so that's a that, tax subsidy a tax credit to, to employers, employers as, yes. who want
2: to offer.
3: Exactly. Leave. Yes. Um so that's there. Mm-hmm. It's not had a substantial impact as far as we know. Um and that was championed by Deb Fisher in the Senate mm-hmm. as part of the tax bill process. Um and Donald Trump during the campaign, you may remember he said six weeks of maternity leave. He got roundly criticized by both feminists and folks on the right and when he got into office um, for the last three years has put into his budget a very anemic paid parental leave proposal that's problematic for all sorts of reasons so six weeks of paid leave for new parents it would be run through state unemployment insurance programs but okay. without any resources really to the states to do that and would have low wage replacement rates and the eligibility rules aren't great so and state UI systems are already kind of overburdened and old. So those are kind of two proposals that are out there. More recently, we've seen some other ideas. Uh, So Marco Rubio, as you mentioned, has sort of moved past the tax credit thing, uh, along with Joni Ernst and Mike Lee of Utah and um, Senator Romney, also from Utah, Um, they have proposed— Uh, The idea that new parents, again, only new parents, so Mm -hmm. excluding 75% of people who use FMLA, new parents would be able to take from their Social Security, from Social Security, receive benefits at the time that they have a new child, and in exchange, work into retirement twice as many weeks as they used for parental leave.
2: Right. So this is basically you can, like, borrow your retirement time and then you pay it back with
3: interest. Yes. And this assumes that you are able-bodied and still able to work at retirement, and it doesn't account for the lifetime benefit cut that researchers from the Urban Institute say that you will get if you delay your retirement by even, you know, if you take 12 weeks of leave and you work another 24 weeks, you're getting a 3% benefit cut per child. So that's 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 one idea that is insufficient and and not great. Also, because the very people who are most reliant on their Social Security as their main source of income in retirement Mm -hmm. are the very people who probably don't have paid leave now.
2: But essentially here, though, I mean, the idea is to say that at least as regards new parents, um, that they agree that we should do something. But they are trying. But I, I mean, obviously, like Republicans don't agree with the idea of like higher taxes. Right. So they are trying to come up with a,
3: a, a, an alternative. a fiscally neutral
2: yes. way well, to do it. Well, uh,
3: yeah, I argue with that. The idea that it's fiscally neutral, like maybe yes, maybe no. But uh-huh. sure, we'll take that for a right. second. So there's another idea that's come out recently that actually has a Democrat and a Republican each in the Senate in the House. Again, just just mm-hmm. new parents. Mm-hmm. Um, but this th- is
2: Cinema this and is someone?
3: Cinema and Cassidy in the Senate and Stefanik and Allered in the House. And this would say that new parents could advance, have an interest free loan, basically $5,000 on the future value of their child tax credit. So you get $5,000, you claim uh-huh. $5,000 when you have a, a child who's right. born or adopted. And for the next 10 years, you get $500 less in your child tax credit uh-huh. um, to pay back that right. loan. Okay. I got problems with that one too. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, I mean, I, I, I guess I, I don't.
2: I don't see that as an adequate solution, but it's not obvious to me what's the problem with it.
3: I mean well well I think yeah, there it's it's not an adequate solution. Again, most of the people who don't have paid leave are probably the people who need the full value of their child yeah, tax yeah, credit yeah, yeah, to yeah, pay yeah. for child care and aftercare and camp and like taking your kid to the doctor and buying them clothes. So No, I mean
2: I look I know.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's just it's not paid leave. Um, sure. It's a it's a ba- baby loan. I uh-huh. don't know. It's not even a baby bonus, which other countries do. Like, it's a baby loan. Like, it's basically saying— Well, it's saying, a baby
2: bonus. Yeah, right. It's, right. it's, it's like it's,
3: your future self is making a decision about whether your future self— whether your present self is making a decision about whether your future self needs the money more or whether your present okay, self but, but, needs but the money but
2: like, more. But, like, whether or not—right? I mean, because, look, when when I asked you about the uh, Space Force federal yeah. worker leave, you know, swap. Yeah. You said you thought that was—
3: I mean, it's that, fine. That
2: was a good idea. It's, it's I mean, obviously, forward. it doesn't address the problem. Like,
3: why— So I have, like, a fundamental problem. (laughs) I think you're you're egging me on here. I have a fundamental problem with saying, like, this is the best we can do. Uh So, like, we are setting—to the Space Force example, like, we are setting up a whole sixth branch of the military, and we can't—like, the the compromise was for new parents, but not for people who are caring for seriously loved ones or your own serious health conditions. Like, we can set up a whole sixth branch of the military, and we can't let two million federal workers take— Twelve weeks of paid leave when they need it, if they have a serious health issue that meets the criteria. Like, why? I don't know.
2: <laughs> you have to find Colin Allred sometime.
3: And, I mean, uh, well, I don't. I mean, I don't know where he was on that one. But yeah, I mean, on CTC, <laughs> like, well, he was just at the White House uh, for the White House summit on, on families to talk about this middle ground solution, and you know, I just, I think we lack an understanding of the costs of the status quo here. And we, mm-hmm. we haven't started to talk about that <laughs> yet. But like, All right.
2: What are the costs so the, of the status So the quo? Center for
3: American Progress estimates that families at, on uh, aggregated lose $20.6 billion a year because mm-hmm. of inadequate or no paid family leave. We have babies that are not getting taken to well baby visits and getting their immunizations. We have 23% of moms that are going back to work within two weeks of giving birth. We have dads who are of whom are not even taking two weeks Mm -hmm. off. We have employers who are able to sort of, you know, set the terms and conditions for their lowest wage workers who are vulnerable and don't have any bargaining power. We are costing on average $300,000 in income and retirement savings for older workers who are leaving work to care for an aging parent. We have higher nursing home expenses we have businesses that have more turnover and, therefore, are bearing the cost of retention. Like, these are all hidden costs that we're not seeing. We have families who are, you know, already economically struggling who maybe have no choice but to take an unpaid leave and then are are dipping into savings, not paying their bills, turning, in some cases, to other public programs. Like, there are costs all over the place that mm-hmm. are being born. They're just not being borne by an effective kind of system of how we compensate people when they need to take time out of the workforce to care for themselves. And we have,
2: uh, as people who remember the The Lime and Stone episode of the show, um, I mean, we have people not having as many uh, children as they say they want. And when the New York Times did a poll on this and, you know, they asked people why. And it was like four different ways of saying it's too expensive were like four out of the top five issues, not like, I have had a total revaluation of values and don't think family is important. You know, because that's fine, right? I mean, people can decide what what they want in life.
3: Or you could think it's bad for the planet. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things
2: people think, right?
3: But Uh, but, it's expensive. But what we're showing is that people
2: couldn't, people felt they couldn't afford to do what they want. wages
3: aren't growing, Mm -hmm. housing prices are going up, we don't have a a system of childcare. And on top of it, like you got to go back to work. While you're bleeding. Like, it just doesn't—or while your mom is in the hospital dying. Like, it just doesn't work. Mm -hmm,
4: mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. But
3: on the—yeah, on the baby thing, we don't make it easy for people to have babies. And, you know, I think there was an EY study a couple of years ago that showed that 40 percent of millennials said they would move to a different country Uh to get paid leave.
2: They probably won't,
3: though. They they probably won't. (laughs) But the other point about millennials—and this really goes to sort of, like, the insufficiency of just parental, of leave for new parents or to care for a new Mm child— is um, among people who are caring for a family, a seriously ill family member, 25% of those folks are millennials. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, there was just a great study that came out from National Alliance for Caregiving and Caring Across Generations that showed that of those people, like 11 million people are caring for both a child and somebody else. Um, Twenty uh, Half of them are millennials and another 25% or so are Gen Xers or more Gen than X. that even maybe. So like these are people who are dealing with who are squeezed um, and are dealing with care in all ways.
2: So just before uh, we we recorded this, uh, Business Roundtable came out with a statement of uh, what, yeah. what do you call it? Is it a statement of principles? It's a what, what is yeah. it? Yeah,
3: I mean it was a letter to Congress mm-hmm. and to the President that articulated that for the first time, the Business Roundtable, which is comprised of yeah, CEOs who is the of the CEOs of the largest companies in America. So this letter on behalf of the Business Roundtable, was signed by the chair and CEO of IBM, um, Jenny Remedy. And for the first time, the BRT, which, you know, is traditionally an opponent of really any regulation Mm -hmm. around business and employees, um, said that they were in favor of a comprehensive paid family and medical leave program for the country. So not just new parents, Mm -hmm. but all FMLA purposes. Now, this is—I think this is— Significant. And this to me is a significant sign of the progress that state advocates have made in passing all sorts of different and more expansive state laws. Um, because th- this is born of frustration that there are now multiple state laws mm-hmm. that multi state businesses need to comply with and a recognition that that state momentum is going to continue. So, what? So, this is
2: they essentially are trying to create a uh, park a federal yes. solution rather than be complying with 14 different policies in different blue states Absolutely. and having a some kind of bidding war yeah. probably. Where-
3: yeah. So they, I mean, they, you know, their code word is uniformity. Like mm-hmm. they want preemption. They want preemption sure. of these state laws and they want to replace it with a federal standard that's, that wouldn't be as, inclus- as inclusive in terms of who's eligible and, you know, who knows what else. Sure. So there are definitely... Problems, but as an opening negotiating position around mm-hmm. what a federal policy should look like, I'm pretty happy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that may some cause some consternation for some of my friends. But like this is the fact that this is a political group, process though, yeah, right? Like I mean, the fact that this major business group felt like they needed to put on the table we want comprehensive, we don't just want new parents, and we think that there should be a standard, and they use language that implies that they're in favor of social insurance. Mm-hmm. Um I think that's a big deal.
2: But so a business would probably rather have the social insurance model than a than a pure regulatory model, yeah, right?
3: I, I think so. Well, I, I think it depends. So mm-hmm. I think if you're a large business and you're already providing great benefits, you want to keep doing what you're doing. And okay. there's some language in this letter that says businesses that meet the minimum standard should have flexibility. Okay. Right. Um, and I think that creates some problems around enforcement and how are you certain that that everybody in that workplace is getting what they need and how are you making sure especially that lower-wage workers right. are getting leave and how do you not replicate, um, you know, a vastly disparate tiered benefit structure? How do you create a, a minimum mm-hmm. standard that is actually – you know, a meaningful, adequate minimum standard. I mean, the,
2: the problem with these mandates, I mean, I I, I, I saw some people, uh, was Twitter people, who were like, yeah, just make the employers do it.
3: Yeah. Um, and,
2: but- you know, the problem with that in practice, right, is like Congress always ends up exempting small employers from stuff like that for not necessarily bad reasons, as we were discussing right. before. But then that really encourages um, – I forget whose book this is, but th- a lot of these like fissured workplace yes. phenomena. Yeah, like David w- Weil. Yeah. Yeah, where it can be like, okay, like, you know, like Fancy Co. Like everybody here gets leave, but like all the janitors right. and, you know, it, like half the people who are working here right. don't, don't quote won't. unquote work here. Yes. They're at these little subcontracting things. Right. And
3: that's why you need a national, that's why you need a social insurance program that mm-hmm. sets a national standard that employers can do better than, but you, you need a floor. Mm-hmm. And, you know, where I think I think there's an interesting opportunity to talk about, well, if we are going to set our federal standard and we have state laws that in Oregon, for example, provide one hundred percent wage replacement to a broad set of family members with full mm-hmm. job protection, can we set a federal standard that says that? Mm-hmm. because that's a different a different calculation than a federal standard that is actively taking away those rights right. And so, and what we wouldn't want to do also is replicate, the eligibility rules around the Family and Medical Leave Act because forty percent of the workforce is cut out of the FMLA by virtue of the fact that they work for small employers or haven't been on the job long enough or are working part time. Yeah, what
2: what are those criteria?
3: So the Family and Medical Leave Act of nineteen ninety three, um, which again provides twelve unpaid weeks of leave mm-hmm. for all of the reasons we talked about: parental leave, family caregiving, personal medical leave, and military. Um, you have to ha- be at a workplace. It's, it applies to workplaces that have 75%—I'm sorry, uh, 70—oh, my gosh. 75
2: workers. No, 50 workers
3: within 75 miles who have worked for that employer for at least a year and have worked 1,250 hours. Okay. So each of those three criteria end up cutting out a 41% of the workforce, disproportionately lower-wage workers and women. Yikes. And people of color. Right. So we don't want to do that. And so we need to create a standard that applies to everyone no matter where you work or what job you have, or how big your workplace is. And, and, you know, what I think is really exciting is that the advocacy work that's happening is including small businesses, Mm -hmm. um, groups like Main Street Alliance and Small Business Majority, who are working to educate and organize small businesses who are saying this is cost— it would be cost-effective and helpful for us to have a standard. We've seen it work in states, and we want that at the national level, too. Um, So uh, just recently, the House Oversight and Reform Committee, Carolyn Maloney, chaired her very first committee ever, hearing ever, on the topic of comprehensive paid family medical leave. Um, And one of the witnesses is— uh, owns a cleaning company mm-hmm. um, here in the District of Columbia and in Massachusetts, it's where he has employees. And he talked about how as a small business guy who wants to do right by his workers, having a national standard would be really, really helpful. Um, and again, you know, I talked about Sarah Piepenberg at the beginning of the show, same thing. So and then there are employers in New Jersey who have just been doing this and mm-hmm. have been living with the New Jersey law now for a, a decade. And they see that it has value to them. So we also have to get past this idea that we have to exempt small businesses. No, like we actually need to make this inclusive. And and part of the reason we need a standard is so people can move between employers easily to seek better opportunities. And so that there is a level playing field.
2: And who is the overall... Like w- which state is like the 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 true gold standard here? is it is it the Oregon that you I think, mentioned? Yeah,
3: or I mean, so Oregon is the, the state that passed most recently. It was passed earlier this summer mm-hmm. um, following on Connecticut, which okay. also passed this summer. And yeah, I mean, in terms of the wage replacement, both the rate and the maximum benefit in terms of the family definition, in terms of the uses for leave, sexual assault is included in the Oregon law. In terms of the job protection, I think Oregon is probably the best. And it passed with bipartisan support. That's the other thing we haven't talked Mm -hmm. about. But Oregon, Washington, and Massachusetts, um, and to to some extent New York, all passed with bipartisan support. So this idea that Congress has to be stuck in this— Sort of false sense of defining down what's bipartisan, I think, is ridiculous.
2: Okay, I'm gonna ask you a super wheezy question because I'm curious. Um, so, in the federal version of this, right, you're essentially piggybacking on the Social Security Administration's um, basic like bureaucratic infrastructure for you know identifying who people are, yep. sending checks to people. Uh, so states obviously can't do that because it's a federal agency. Um, so, like, how does it work mechanically? Like, who who does the Oregon Leave Program? Is it a is it a do they, are they using the state disability ins- – uh, unemployment insurance or like yeah, what Yeah, and happened? so
3: each of the states use generally the same agency that administers their disabil- their uh, unemployment insurance program. Okay. There's some variation. Um, in New York, it's the Insurance Commission because mm-hmm. their program set up a little bit different. But, yeah, it's the agency that has access to wage data – and earnings data mm-hmm. or and employment data. Right. Um, and they're collecting the revenues from employers, um, both the employer contribution where mm-hmm. it exists and the employee contribution. And then they're determining the eligibility and they're they're you know either cutting a check with air quotes or they're giving debit cards or whatever <laughs> method they're using to provide pay. Right. And so right now there are programs that are functioning in four states: California, New Jersey, Rhode Island, New York. Um, starting January 1st, Washington State will begin paying benefits. In July of next year, DC will begin paying benefits. Um, in 2021, Massachusetts will begin paying benefits, and then um, we've got Connecticut and Oregon. Coming why? Up. Why do they have that slow phase? It well because you've got to set up the system. Uh-huh. You've got to start collecting the. You've got to do the education to employers. You've got to start collecting revenues. You have to have the the, the fund. Be operational before you can start paying out the benefits. Okay.
2: Um, so, okay, b- before I let you go, um, you know, I, I like to ask, uh, wh- what did I miss here? What what should I have asked you about?
3: Well, you know, we haven't talked at all about public opinion on this. Oh, yeah, public um, opinion. Which is tremendously important because 80% of workers like a Family Act model. There you um, go. They like the idea of paying into a fund and having access for all of the reasons that are covered by the FMLA. Um, they don't like these other proposals that we've talked about. Okay. So
2: now, does this hold up though? If you do, if you do, like tough polling, we yes. tell you about how I'm going to raise your taxes. Yes, it holds that up. still goes.
3: Yeah. So there's there's one poll out there that is is would go against that. It's from the Cato Institute, and yeah. it asked about amounts that are completely unreasonable. So that I I. Dismiss that like under the family Act the most that anybody would pay in in a year is like is like 250 dollars and okay. that's the highest wage workers
2: so when they but when if, they pumped it up to yeah, like you're gonna pay thousand yeah, dollars a
3: year like of course like nobody wants it but if you ask workers first of all like if you ask them whether they're willing to pay into a fund uh, one half of one percent of their mm-hmm. of their wages you know 70 80 percent say yes if you ask them are you willing to pay into a fund and how much are you willing to pay 70 to 80 percent say I am. Most people are willing to pay way more than the than the you know split four-tenths of one percent.
2: All right. There you go. So people want it?
3: Yeah, and small they businesses too. Small business polling seven and ten uh small businesses say that they're in favor of this payroll tax contribution model of okay, providing well, so family then, medical. If,
2: if, it, if it really is so popular, I mean you're you 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 you're here in town, you you talk to people. Um why is it that you're talking about 37 Senate Democrats instead of 47 or, or whatever yeah. it is? Like, what's the...
3: So I think until recently, it seemed like this was far off. And so why bother putting mm-hmm. your name on a bill if unless, yeah, I think there is...
2: Because I it, get the, the quest for compromise, right? Yeah, I mean, people can I, always sort of debate, like, the merits of, like, right. doing something wishy-washy. I, I think until but,
3: recently, the urgency hasn't been there, to mm-hmm. be honest with you. And I do think that there is this perception that they're they're you know, that at the end, that, like, as the debate goes on, as, you know, millions of dollars of opposition funding gets thrown in, like, perhaps. Sure. Things things do
2: get tougher. Yeah,
3: things get tougher. But, like, again, you know, I look at the states that have done this and have done this with bipartisan support. Massachusetts bill was signed by a Republican governor. The Washington state bill was negotiated equally by Democrats and Republicans and by business groups and consumer groups. We— I think, remember, like, Congress has a failure of imagination and to some extent I feel like has blinders on when it comes to what's possible.
4: All
2: right. Um,
3: so, like, when I've testified, <laughs> I've sort of encouraged them not to be held back by their ideas about bipartisanship, about what, what bipartisanship means.
2: All right. There you go. Fantastic. Okay. Thank you so much. Vicki Shebo from New America. Uh, thanks, as always, to Malachi Brodus engineering this episode, Jackson Bierfeld, our producer, and the Weeds will be back on Tuesday.
5: The Current Podcast is back with an exciting new season featuring marketing executives from the world's most influential brands. Tune in to hear what's driving conversation in the fast-moving world of digital advertising with unique insights from brands as diverse as Hilton, Instacart, Moderna, Major League Soccer, and more. And in this presidential election season, The Current explores what a national political advertiser like the National Republican Senatorial Committee and a major CPG brand like Hershey can learn from each other. Listen in and subscribe to The Current at thecurrent.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Support for this show comes from Fundrise. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do.